0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This podcast is a Royfield brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah,
1: I know. In an uncertain world, there is always music which can be listened to in good company. Welcome to Friday Fifteen, the show where we speak to friends and interesting people to the backdrop of great tunes and allocate 15 minutes to both. Today we speak to Ruth Vipers about love and addiction as our autobiography, Dragon King's Daughter, goes on sale and we bookend our chat, of course, with some excellent music. Genre bending, drawn electronica, punk, r and and the avant-garde are just some of the adjectives that describe the music scape of FKA Twigs. Her track Two Weeks is another lush production with a cinematic sounding score. Take a listen.
2: Mouth.
1: Dennis Brown was the Jamaican reggae artist of choice during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. During his prolific career, he, which began in the late 60s, recorded more than 75 albums. Bob Marley cited Brown as his favourite singer, dubbing him the Crown Prince of Reggae. Sitting and Watching is just one of his very many hits. My first autobiography is new on Amazon and is the story of an extraordinary life. Hello, Ruth.
3: Hello, Roy Field.
1: So, now, the last time I checked, I hadn't seen you on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here or on the cover of Hello. So, <laughs> I think, suffice to say, you're not a celeb. So, why did you write an autobiography?
3: Exactly. I'm not a celebrity, so still get me out of here. Um, I wrote an autobiography because I think that every single person has a, a story to tell and also has the potential for an incredible transformation and um, yeah so I, I, I kind of wanted to be a bit rude in a way and say look I'm not a celebrity but I've written an autobiography about a transformation from something of you know uh, a lot of suffering in my childhood to incredible happiness and joy now so yeah that's what I wanted to share.
1: Your autobiography is called The Dragon King's Daughter. Um, Why is that title significant and why is her story maybe a little more more insightful than that of the Little Mermaid?
3: Dragon King's Daughter is the only character in all of the Buddhist sutras where um, a female character becomes enlightened. The story of the Dragon King's Daughter has come all the way to two and a half thousand years. It's, It's traveled through countries it's through travel through time it's because she is this this character that represents not only the enlightenment of all women but of all men too so very very significant character and she was just really just a kind Mm -hmm. of like a a reptilian eight-year-old low-life little girl so the fact that she could be transformed into an enlightened person meant that everybody can (laughs) and and
1: why do you make the analogy in your book with that of the little mermaid
3: Well, I just think we're still kind of, even now, you know, two and a half thousand years later, I kind of, you know, you kind of look around and there still seems to be this... um kind of romantic, an, an attachment to a romantic ideal about, oh, you know, like, uh, you know, the reward for personal transformation is, is you know, like getting the man or, you know, th- there still seems to be a lot of kind of emphasis on this kind of fairy tale ending. And of course, you know, in 21st century society, we know that this is absolutely not not to be the case. Uh, so so in the same way that the Dragon King's daughter emerges from the sea to reveal her enlightenment, um, it, it, it's, it's a much more positive and, and optimistic story than the story of The Little Mermaid, which was a 19th century story of basically a female suppression uh, written by Hans Christian Andersen. So
1: talking about the sea, you grew up by the sea. Tell us a little bit about yeah. your early childhood.
3: Oh, yeah. In uh, the northeast of England, in, in Sunderland, we were four, I, was, I was four actually when we left and uh, we moved down to the East Midlands, but I definitely remember just having this massive beach. In fact, I think my first steps were taken on the beach, it surprised my parents one day, but just by kind of standing up and like pelting down towards the water. Um, but yeah, very kind of like raw, but open, kind of beautiful uh, beaches along that, that northeast coast. So um, yes, that's where the story starts in terms of my own life. Yeah, And and then the story kind of takes
1: us through to you being a young schoolgirl and the the abuse that you suffered at the hands of your teacher. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the forms that that abuse took and, and maybe how that defined your early childhood?
3: Yeah, I mean, I was eight years old, interesting, the same age as the uh, Dragon King's daughter when she comes out of the sea. But um, well, what was happening to me when I was eight years old was that I was at the hands of a paedophile in, um, in a classroom for a year and a very kind of, uh, yeah, uh, unhappy kind of process uh, that that I was subjected to by this teacher where I would be kind of encouraged to seek his approval and his attention and, and during that process he would molest me and um, and then make me feel very ashamed for it and also make me feel very responsible for it as well. And uh, and I think for something like that to happen every day for a year at eight years old, um, it left quite a few psychological scars, which because I was unable to share that reality, in fact, I, I'm not even sure I was really sure what my reality was uh, at that age, um, Those those kind of psychological wounds didn't get... Uh, any attention they weren't repaired and so they then carried on into into my teens
1: and were you not able to speak to friends or your parents because you grew up in a very kind of christian home didn't you could you not share that with um with your parents
3: it's funny actually you know it's kind of like a lot of people have asked me that question and um I think it was a very different environment in the 1970s. Um, it was a different environment for uh, for women generally in society. I mean, a woman couldn't get a mortgage in their own name before 1980 without a male guarantor. Um, and I think there was, and I think what's really coming out in all of the stories in the media at the moment is that uh, this was going on. This was going on in institutions. It was going on in homes. It was going on. Um, to quite a wide extent, you know, I mean, it'll be really interesting when I think when, you know, when this National Child Inquiry has actually gone ahead and we actually look at the statistics and, you know, maybe like one in two children were experiencing some form of, you know, sexual abuse, but... Um, it it was something that i think adults was was, were were quite fearful characters back in back in the 1970s i don't think there was a, a i think the relationship that i now see um my my peers having with their children is is a very different dynamic now uh to to how it was back then and um I remember one of the the school kids, it wasn't just me actually, that was being abused in the classroom. And I remember one of the children saying to me at one point, there's no point in us trying to say anything to anyone because no one will believe us, you know, but they said one day, one day we'll be adults and then we'll be able to do something.
1: Without wanting to jump around your story um, a little bit too much, but at what point um, did you actually um, speak to somebody about what had happened to you um, as a child, actually as an adult?
3: I think that started to come out in a process of recovery. I went into um, recovery for addictions in in various forms about, well, 10 years ago, actually. Yeah, it's 10 years ago since I actually went into recovery. And, you know, first of all, it's just all about kind of like stopping your addictive processes, and that takes a while. And then kind of being able to access some really... um, leading edge uh, kind of um, psychotherapy, you know, which I've done here in, in the UK, but also in America as well. And I think gradually, 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 I started to be able to uncover. Um, yeah, I started to be able to make connections, I think, between you know what I was what, what I was kind of struggling with in the here and now and how that related to something that had happened 40 years ago but it wasn't really until the the police launched an investigation into the school teacher because I think some other people had come forward and during their process they got in touch with me and it was at that point I think that I was able to Really sit down. I'm a policeman and a policewoman came around to my house one night, and they took my statement. And I think that was the moment where I really, two people just sat down, and with over a period of about four hours, they sat down and just said, "Okay, just tell us everything." And that's when I think it, it all fell into place. You know, it all dropped at that moment. That was about two years ago.
2: Yeah.
1: Now, I know that music plays a very central point um, throughout the book. After saying what you just said, um, Tori Amos is silent all these years. Um, it's a pretty, pretty obvious why it has a resonance with you. So mm. why don't mm. we take a listen to that and you can tell us exactly what that means to you afterwards. Okay.
4: Excuse me, but can I be you for a while? My dog won't bite if you sit real still I got the Antichrist in the kitchen Yelling at me again Yeah, I can hear that Been saved again by the garbage truck I got something to say, you know But nothing comes Yes, I know what you think of me You never shut up Yeah, I can hear that But what if i In these jeans of his With her name still on it But I don't care Cause sometimes I said Sometimes I hear my voice And it's been really deep thoughts What's so amazing about really deep thoughts Boy, you best pray that I bleed real soon How's that thought for you? My scream got lost in a paper cup Do you think there's a heaven where some screams have gone I got 25 bucks and a cracker, do you think it's enough to get us there, what if I'm a man in these jeans of his With her name still on it But I don't care Cause sometimes I said Sometimes I hear my voice And it's been here he- 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 he Silent all these years go by when
2: way we
4: communicate your eyes focus on my funny lip shape let's hear what you think of me now but baby don't look up the sky is falling your mother shows up in a nasty dress and it's your turn now to stand where i stand everybody looking at you you take hold of my hand yeah i can hear them what if I'm a mermaid in these jeans of yours with her name still on it hey, but I don't care cause sometimes I said sometimes I hear my voice, I heal my voice, I heal my voice and it's been healed.
3: Actually, I, I had a very close girlfriend in, in the early 90s, and um, the night that we, sh- we met, she actually played me this track, and I was just, I don't know, it just I absolutely went to the heart of me. I thought it was an amazing track, I learned all the words, I tried to learn the guitar so I could sing it, you know, at the end of the night when the guitar gets passed around, and... You know, I just just thought it was just a fantastic track. I also thought it was a fantastic album and I followed Tori Amos's work for for a long time. It wasn't until I decided to use a verse of this song as the kind of the leading quote that starts off The Dragon King's Daughter that I did a little bit of research into the track and found out that... um, it, Tori had written it um, in the kind of wake of her own experiences of sexual abuse, but it become a kind of signatory track, really, for the Rain campaign, which is a big campaign in America about rape and incest network. And um, and also, uh, Tori Amos had been inspired to write the song after uh, reading about uh, reading Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid song, so it was kind of like her expression of it. Uh, so it was interesting because I'd already decided that was the that was the leading kind of song quote that I wanted at the beginning of the Mm. book and then realized how relevant how really really relevant it was in in light of my own story
1: so let's go back a little bit more to your story so if I'm trying to kind of sum it up and I want you to give us a couple of specifics here it's kind of what I got from it is it's a story of of addiction of uh, kind of great kind of kind of urges and i've uh, been addicted mm. to, to love so how do you describe mm. how do you describe your kind of first emotional relationships as as a young adult did they and how, terrifying you... go on
3: <laughs> well yeah i mean sorry i shouldn't have cut you off i was interested like in what, what, what the last part of that question was but i think what happened was was that um what happened with the school teacher in the classroom and, and this kind of like impact that it had on my own self-esteem, my, own, my kind of like the relationship I had with my own body and then, the relationship that I actually had with a male figure and um, you know and I had a strict father as well so you know this was be- this was already becoming a theme by the time I was eight years old but you know what the school teacher did within that kind of power play was he also sexualized it which I think um, impacted a lot and when it came to you know going into my teens and then start you know boy meets girl and like we've all got get boyfriend and it all starts happening I'm sure we can all remember what starts happening in those early teens it was just this kind of like terror, which I could only really overcome by reaching for alcohol. And then once, once I'd done that, I was kind of in a state of kind of soothed medicate. I was in a medicated state, um, so not necessarily making the best choices. But, but interestingly, I mean, a lot of my kind of relationships were with with really lovely boys, but I. I just had such a fear of intimacy and such a um, low self-esteem I guess is is the only way I can really describe it. How much
1: do you think that was down to um, the abuse that you suffered at the hands of your teacher or maybe the lack of being able to confide in your parents you know that in terms of creating that reality?
3: Yeah I mean I think both I mean I think you know lots of people most of us in our lives at some point will encounter trauma of some kind or another you know that is life and I think you know you only need to look at little children and and you know their kind of traumatic experiences whether it's just literally falling down in the playground or you know to 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 some of you know the, the kind of most extreme things that we see and I mean I don't switch on the television very much and watch the news because you know you i don't really like looking at, at people being traumatized but one thing i know is is that with the right kind of guidance and the right kind of care and the right attention um you know trauma can be resolved you know it can be re- and it can be resolved quite quickly because it is a part of life and, and therefore we are as human beings we are equipped to deal with it of course we are otherwise we wouldn't have survived as a as a species for as long as we have so what so did
1: why don't you tell us um, where you uh, turned to to help kind of get over some of the traumas that life had kind of dealt you
3: I think by the time I was in my very early 30s I was 33 I was repeatedly thinking about killing myself not because I necessarily wanted to kill myself but just because the internal pain was so much that I just didn't know how else it, you can, know it can could, you remember could
1: end that, can you remember that first moment when you seriously thought about suicide
3: I mean, I took an overdose of of alcohol and painkillers when I was 17 years old. How serious I was at that point about ending my life on this planet at that moment, I'm not sure. But I know that it was definitely something that I was doing in a kind of very desperate state, wanting to end this kind of internal trauma and I mean on the outside everything looked relatively okay I was getting very very good grades at school I was set to go off to a very good university I had a lovely boyfriend who absolutely adored me but internally I was just falling apart I just I just couldn't live with myself even at that point and um and I think it didn't matter how far I then went through my life went off to the good university I got the good degree I came to London I got an incredible job I made relatively large amounts of money during my you know my 20s um so all the kind of like the things on the outside that people might say oh yeah you know this is all okay but inside it was just it was a totally different story and um at 33 like I said I was kind of what I felt was spiritually barren was the kind of what feeling that I had inside. But I guess I was just very emotionally, um, you know, unhappy. And um, it was actually a chance encounter with uh, a Buddhist lady. And she introduced me to chanting um, a Buddhist mantra. And in that moment, I felt something stir inside of me that I just intuitively knew that would make me feel better, that, that would take me onto the path. And, 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 and it certainly was. And I have actually chanted that mantra every day for 15 years since then. And as a result of that, i been able to transform my life so that, yeah, I've been able to transform all of that trauma and all of that unhappiness into, into the complete opposite, actually.
1: So the Dragon King's Daughter is a story, it's a love story. Um, but with where you don't get the prince.
3: <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, the, the the first lines of the book are, imagine a lost story where the girl doesn't get the boy or the girl and still live happily ever after. I wanted to challenge this this paradigm that we have, you know, still, I think, within our society that somehow it's not all worked out if, you know, you haven't got the man and the kids and the... you, you know what I mean? The 2.4 mm. and the, whatever. But I think as well, I think... You know what the the biggest lesson for me from from my recovery is that the most important love life anybody can have is the love life that they have with themselves you know and i don 't want that to sound like really Ugh. and um, and I think this is the you know the the adventures of a sex and love addict that I kind of like are referred to in the subtitle of the book are they 're really spiritual adventures they 're emotional adventures you know once we can get into that you know relationship with ourselves, then really it 's only ever between me
1: and me ruth vipers thank you for coming on to friday 15 the dragon king's daughter is available on amazon and can i say from all good bookshops as well
3: uh selected at the moment we've just gone through. they're, a- they're the good ones, amazon ones to start off with <laughs> <Fantastic>. <laughs> exactly amazon <Fantastic>. for now <laughs> thank
1: you all right um back in 1979, when the nation had its first female prime minister, Love Will Terrace Apart was written by Ian Curtis of Joy Division. Recorded in 1980, Love Will Terrace Apart has remained critically popular and is always listed as one of the best pop songs ever. the show so if you'd like to appear on friday 15 all you need to do is email me i am royfield which is spelled r-o-i-f-i-e-l-d at gmail.com you can follow me on social media specifically twitter where i'm at royfield i'm also on facebook of course Um, quite simply that's just about it oh the last thing before i go Please go on to iTunes and please write us a five-star review so we can launch Friday 15th with a little bit of a bang. See you next week, next Friday, for 50 minutes of chat and fifteen minutes of music.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.